Father, we come before you and we thank you for your word. We ask for your blessing on it as we read the text here, that we might learn all about you, who you are, what you've done, how you're going to take care of humanity, the plans which are in store. Father, show us more of your character and help us to follow the example which you have set. We desire, Lord, also to follow your commands, and it is difficult for us to do it while we're in these bodies of flesh. But we know we can overcome by the power of your Spirit. So enable us, teach us, and guide us. In Jesus' name, amen. We left off in 1 John chapter 3. I think we made it to verse 10, beginning in verse 4. But the last time I was with you on this, we covered the idea that those who believe are called the children of God, and not everybody is a child of God. We covered that because we are encouraged in Scripture to become children of God. Specifically in the Gospel of John, chapter 3, it tells us that we must be born again and be born into the family of God. We cannot become part of the family of God just by association. Just because we hang out with Christians doesn't make us Christians. Now, as we continued in this, we also saw that there is a distinction made between those who sin, those of the world, and those who do not sin. And those who have accepted Christ in their spiritual new life, they are incapable of sin. But in the old life, in the flesh, we struggle with sin. Especially when you get to Romans chapter 7, the end of the chapter there, Paul tells us how he struggles to do what is good. And he wants to do what is right, but it is not within him to do that. But Scripture tells us that if we continue in a life of sin, and sin is defined in Scripture, it's anything that is against God's will. If we continue in that and we say it's okay that God will forgive us, we deceive ourselves and we are not saved. We have to come to this understanding of what God calls sin. We have to buy into it hook, line, and sinker. We have to point our finger at that which is sin and declare it to be so. If we point our finger at sin and say, well, you know, if it's okay for you, God will forgive you if he considers it's wrong. It's wrong. And that is not the case. God tells us specifically, do not be deceived by calling that which is sin, turning it around and calling it good. Now, we know that this is happening a lot in our society, and those who do so will suffer persecution. The world will hate those who stand up and say, this is wrong, you ought not to be carrying out this particular behavior. And this is explained to us even more fully in this particular chapter. Now, as we get into this chapter, we're going to see a few clues to our salvation because each one of us, at times we have doubts. When we say to ourselves, well, am I really saved? You know, I have this desire to do something which is not good, and I can't seem to turn it around, and it keeps on coming in my mind that that's what I want to do, but I know God calls it wrong, and a lot of times I just fall to it. So why do I think that I'm even saved? And so we have these doubts. 
Am I really saved? Am I really coming along as a disciple as God wants me to? Or am I failing miserably at this? We all know that as disciples, there are certain things that should be recognizable to not only ourselves, but those who are around us. And it expands a little bit in this chapter. It gives us these clues, these indicators of what these things are to let us know that we are actually saved. But on the onset, you would just look at yourself and you say, okay, am I saved? I've used this illustration before. How do you know that somebody is in the military? Well, they probably have a tattoo, right? No, I'm just kidding. Not everybody has a tattoo in the military. But if you're in the military, usually you have a particular haircut. Whether you're a woman or you're a man, you will not see in the military a guy with hair down the middle of his back. Unless he's special ops and he's going over to Afghanistan, something like that. Even there, you won't have that. He'll have short hair, but his beard may be down to the middle of his back, right? Something like that. But there is a particular dress code that somebody will have if they're in the military. More often than not, somebody in the military is going to know how to use a gun, right? That's what the military is for. Marines, they break things. That's what they do. A lot of guys probably get into the Marines because they had this pyrotechnic tensity, uh, propensity when they were young, like to blow up things, and now they get to do it for real. And so there's a characteristic of somebody who's a, in the military. He's a bomb expert. He likes to blow things up. He likes to destroy things, right? You also have the warrior class, the person who just under control will kill somebody if necessary. That is what they are bent on. That's what they do. That's what they are trained to do. There's going to be a uniform associated with that. There's going to be a code of conduct. If you see all of those things, usually when a new boot comes out, if he addresses somebody, what does he usually say when addressing him? Yes, sir. No, sir. I mean, it's just drilled into him. And you can usually tell who is in the military and who's not. And so the same thing should be a characteristic of the Christian. For instance, and it's not mentioned, these things are not mentioned in here. Do you think a Christian should own a Bible, if possible? Well, yeah, there's a lot of countries that the Christians don't own Bibles. But in this country, if you're a Christian, you should probably have a Bible. And it should not be completely brand new on the gold leaf that goes around the outside of the Bible where you open it up and the pages stick together, right? That's not how your Bible should look. When you're, and don't go home and do this, just mussy up your Bible just to look like you're a Christian. But this, uh, this idea that your Bible is well-worn, if your Bible is well-worn, you will not be. If you continue to go through it and read it and you can tell it's been used and underlined and highlighted and all of that, that would be a characteristic of a Christian. Also, the speech that somebody has, you can tell if somebody is a Christian by their speech and not just in Sunday morning church. I don't think on Sunday morning I have ever heard somebody in here cuss. I don't think I have. Uh, Maybe you have. But I don't think that I have. And, of course, Colossians chapter 3, verse 8 tells us we're to get rid of all filthy language. So that would be a characteristic. Like praying. You should probably pray. You should probably enjoy the fellowship of the saints. And not sporadically. It should be something you do all the time. Like a race car driver. How often does he drive that race car? Probably all the time. 
If he's not driving it, he's working on it. He's looking at it. He's reading about it. He's going to school for it. You know, he's a race car driver. Same thing with a Christian. A Christian who is actually a disciple will have certain characteristics of their lives. Now, this is a little more expanded than what is in this particular text here, but we'll see what God tells us is here. And also this idea of doubt. He tells us in this chapter how that doubt can be alleviated. He also gives us a couple of commands. So we have seen that we also, as believers, what I've gone over before, as believers, we have this desire to purify ourselves. We have this desire to turn away from sin. We are considered sinless children of God in his eyes, even though practically speaking, we are still in a world of sin. We are tied to the flesh, which is sinless, and we cannot be separated from that until we die. And then there is this aspect of the children of God, which is love. Now, love, I want to go to the verse here, verse 11. Let's pick it up there in chapter 3 of First John. It says, This is the message you heard from the beginning. We should love one another. And he gives an example here. Do not be like Cain, who belonged to the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own actions were evil and his brother's were righteous. Another way to say it is he did not love his brother. Now, if you're not familiar with the story of Cain and Abel, I'd like you to turn over to Genesis chapter 4. In Genesis chapter 4, we have Adam and Eve. And of course, this is after the garden experience where they ate of the fruit and they were expelled from the garden. And this is before the flood. And it tells us that Adam lay with his wife Eve in verse 1 of chapter 4 of the book of Genesis. And she became pregnant and gave birth to Cain. She said, with the help of the Lord, I have brought forth a man. Later she gave birth to his brother Abel. Now Abel kept flocks and Cain worked the soil. In the course of time, Cain brought some, excuse me, (coughs) brought some of the fruit of the soil as an offering to the Lord, but Abel brought fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock. The Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering, but on Cain and his offering he did not look with favor. So Cain was very angry, and his face was downcast. Then the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, you will, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door, and it desires to have you. But you must master it. And that is the case with all of us. Sin is crouching at our door. And what does that mean? It's, it's like ready to pounce on you at a moment's notice, and it's crouching at the door. In other words, unsuspecting, you go to the door, you open it, and what happens? You get pounced on, and you're not ready. And so as you're going through your daily walk, your daily life, you got to be ready at any turn, right? And normally, as a soldier for Christ, and Ephesians chapter 6 tells us we're in this spiritual battle, It's almost like you're opening the door, your hand is on your sword. Now the sword, spiritually speaking, is the word of God, right? So you see a temptation come along and it wants to jump out and scare you. Have you ever seen those videos where somebody intends on scaring somebody else and they just about jump out of their skin, you know, when they get scared like that? Well, what we're supposed to do when sin is crouching at our door and the temptation is right there you immediately unsheath your sword and you use it against 
whatever foe is there. Sin is crouching at, the des- at your door and it desires to have you. And your flesh is a willing compatriot. Your flesh will say, okay, sounds good. Let's go. And you're supposed to say, no, I will not sin against the Lord in this fashion. So you pull out your sword and you quote a couple of verses and you move on from that point. Now it goes on in verse 8 and says, Now Cain said to his brother Abel, Let's go out to the field. And while they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. And the Lord said to Cain, Where's your brother Abel? I don't know. He replied, Am I my brother's keeper? Here's a lie on top of a sin of murder. The Lord said, What have you done? Listen, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. Now you are under a curse and driven from the ground which opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it will no longer yield its crops for you. You will be a restless wanderer on the earth. And so there was a curse that was delivered to him for killing his brother. And it wasn't the offering of the vegetables that he gave. It was his life and what he was doing which made the offering unacceptable. In other words, if you want to devote yourself to God, your life has to be acceptable in order for the sacrifice to be acceptable to God. You understand that? If we're walking a life that is not acceptable, whatever sacrifice we made to God or make to God, God just says, you know, I want your heart. I don't want the sacrifice. God is not pleased with those types of sacrifices. Now, if you're doing it solely for the benefit of God and your walk is correct, God is pleased with that. But if you're walking a life that you should not, and we all know what sin is. If you're a believer or you're thinking about being a believer, you know exactly what sin is. You don't have to be taught it. You already know the things that you're not supposed to be doing. I've seen dogs when they tear something up, when you confront the dog. Does the dog look guilty when you confront the the dog even knows what's wrong? I mean, and you can tell by the look on their, the ears go down and the eyes go up, you know. And and so these dogs are fully aware. and, And if dogs are aware, we are aware of what is wrong. And when you are caught in something, the same thing happens. The ears go down, the eyes go up. Oh man, I'm so busted now. Right? When you catch your kids too, especially when they're small, first they try to lie their way out of it. They prevaricate. They say, well, that didn't really happen. Nonsense. Kids know, we know, dogs know. You don't have to be instructed about what is right and wrong. And God says, clean that stuff up. And then your sacrifice will be acceptable. In Matthew chapter 5, it says, if you know that somebody has something against you, when you come to worship, especially at the, at the temple, when they would bring their offering to the temple, God told them in Matthew chapter 5, set your offering aside and go be reconciled to your brother. Once that is done, come back and then offer your sacrifice, whatever that sacrifice is. So he tells us to get our life straight. Cain didn't do that. Cain decided, look, I don't, I don't care. I killed him. I didn't like what he, he was Mr. Goody Two-Shoes. You know, he was always doing everything right. He just had these animals and he's taking care of them. He's probably just going off on his brother. And then when God rejected his sacrifice, that just made him angry. Well, I'm going to just do away with him, he thought. And he already knew that murder was wrong. But he let his anger get a hold of him and he killed his brother. 
And so this idea that sin is there and we have to master it, it's crouching at the door and you have Cain and Abel and this wickedness is there and the, the scripture talks about murderers will not inherit the kingdom of God. And this is not an act of love, which God spells out in verse 11 and verse 12. So just the opposite of love is taking somebody's life. And he says, do not do this thing. Thou shalt not murder. It is one of the Ten Commandments. So his actions were evil, not his offerings. And he was under the influence of the evil one or the devil. And most of the misery in this world, it is because of evil. It is because of the flesh. It is because of the desires that dwell within our flesh that we can't seem to deny ourselves whether it's a megalomaniac that wants to rise to power in some despotic environment and become a dictator over a particular country and killing everybody that's there, whether it's Mussolini, whether it's Lenin, whether it's Karl Marx, or whether it's Pol Pot, or anybody in North Korea, Kim Jong-il or Kim Jong-un. They just kill people left and right because they do not love their brothers. And that is an example. And when I say brothers, I mean that generically for the human race. Now, this has been the case ever since the fall, even though Cain was the first murderer. There was recently an article a few weeks ago in the Telegraph in the UK, and it showed this picture in the Roman Colosseum in Italy. They constructed or reconstructed this large elevator an elevator that was able to move several tons up and down. And in the Colosseum, uh, if you go to the ruins today, you, can, you don't see the floor of the Colosseum. You see the, um, the spaces down below where they had hold the gladiators and they had hold the animals and everything that was in there. And one of the emperors, he would actually get into the arena with some of these animals and he would kill them. There was this desire to see blood and guts and gore and people would fill the Colosseum to see this kind of sport. And it is said that tens of thousands of animals are believed to have been sacrificed in the Colosseum over about four centuries. There was also this fighting of each other, the gladiators, and then they put common criminals there. Excuse me. And it is said that uh, a general who was later defeated by Julius Caesar, he laid on a spectacle in the first century BC in which 20 elephants, 600 lions, 410 leopards are said to have been killed. And they would have been raised on this particular elevator that would go up to the floor of the Colosseum. And, and so they would do this, but later on, it was individuals, what they'd do is they'd put these individuals out there and they would tie them to stakes and they'd release lions and they would allow the lions to eat the human beings on the stakes and they would do this for blood sport. They would watch it. They would buy tickets to get in to see this happen. Now, what kind of love is that? That is not love at all. And God tells us that from the beginning, Cain did this, and it has been all throughout history. This is not the only time that this took place, but there are those who are Christians, and if you read Fox's Book of Martyrs, it'll talk about those Christians. Uh, There was one Christian who was so devoured by animals, by lions, that only a few bones were left, and they got them secretly, and they ended up taking them away to the church of St. Clement in Rome in 637 A.D. And, and Christians were killed left and right in the arena 
And also, uh, I think it was Nero who would put Christians on stakes in his garden and he would ride through his garden on uh, his chariot at night and he would light the Christians on fire while they were alive. And this is not love, this idea of persecution. And God is saying any act of murder is not love. Now, if you think, well, good, at least I'm being loving, I would ask you, have you hated your brother without a reason, without a cause? God says that is murder as well. And so it's not just the actual act. It's just like adultery. If you commit adultery in your heart, you are guilty of the actual act. And someone might say, well, who can do that? No one. Uh, we are all guilty. That's where God's grace comes in. That's where we have to go to God and admit, I, I can't do this. Please save me from this. And he says, I will. I will save you from that. But that's what God declares as sin, and we're supposed to turn from it. We're supposed to have that desire as Christians to get away from that. Now, verse 13 goes on to say, Do not be surprised, my brothers, if the world hates you. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love our brothers. Anyone who does not love remains in death. Anyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life in him. So a couple of things are laid out here. Do not be surprised, my brother, if the world hates you. So as you become a believer and you want to love individuals around you and you don't want to commit murder and you don't want to hate. And by the way, just as a side note, hate is being, and I'm going to use a strong word. Hate is being bastardized in our society today of what hate actually is. It's like love is being bastardized as well. It's being called something that it is not. God defines what is love. Matter of fact, the scripture says, a propositional statement, that God is love. If you want to know what love is, you look at God. If there's anything that's contrary to God, it is not love. But People in today's society say, no, this is love, whatever you want to do. No, God says that's not the case. When you declare that, you will be hated. You know, we, a little side note here, an observation. There are societies that are authoritarian, right? That come along and they tell you what you can do and you can't do. And they pass laws, and there are penalties for those laws. But it shifts from this authoritarian type of existence to this, and I want to call it a despotic type of existence, where those who are in charge will not allow you even to make the mistake they will either kill you or punish you or remove all mention of you so that nobody else sees your example. Now, for instance, um, in our society, in the news, there's a flag that has been out there. Uh, it is the Confederate flag. And people have taken that flag, and I've been listening to commentary on this. They've taken that flag and they associate it with slavery, which, in fact, the South was for slavery. But the reason for the Civil War was secessionist. They wanted to take the South and take it away from the Union with the North. Now, those states down South were involved in slavery, and they wanted to maintain what was there. But the Confederate flag 
is actually a symbol of rebellion against the union. That's why people have that flag. They're in rebellion. Kind of like the don't tread on me flag. You guys seen that with a snake? It's like, stay away from me. You know, I'm a gun owner. You know, that type of thing. And you mess with me, man. You're going to take that gun from my cold, dead hands. You know, that type of thing. And so that particular person who has that flag, the don't tread on me flag, they're portraying something in particular. But the Confederate flag has been co-opted to make it mean something that it doesn't. And we want to wipe that out of history. We don't want anybody talking about it. Even if it's something bad, we want to remember our bad history so we don't repeat it, right? And so you leave it up there and you say, this was not a good thing. Whether you want to believe it was for just slavery or you want to believe that it was for the uh, secessionists that wanted to take themselves away from the union, you don't get rid of that stuff. You remember what took place. There is a move to remove anybody that has a contrary view to what's out there. And so this authoritarian spirit is out there is going to a totalitarian environment. That's what we are battling with right now. And I don't know if you know what a totalitarian government is, but it is not good. And there are people in our society that are pushing that. And you might say, what does this have to do with John, 1 John chapter 3? It's this idea of love and freedom And giving people the ability to be who they are and tell them this is sin, this is not sin. No, we as a society, society wants to declare what sin is and what sin isn't. And they would give no qualms to the idea of killing somebody eventually in a totalitarian society. Look at Boko Haram, look at the Middle East, look at the 1040 window, look at ISIS and everything that they're doing. There, I just read an article how the women of ISIS are making the women who aren't so totalitarian-minded, making them conform. What they're doing is publicly humiliating them. They're taking out whips. These are the women. They're taking out whips, and they're whipping their fellow women to bring them under subjection and telling them that you cannot express anything whatsoever. They don't love their fellow human beings. And I'm going to continue on this rabbit trail for a minute. Going to uh, the fighters against ISIS, have you heard the latest weapon? It's an army of women that are actually gearing up and they're fighting against ISIS. And they are very effective, even more so in some cases than the men. And the reason is because the members of ISIS believe that if a woman kills them, and that's the worst, if a woman kills them, they don't go to the highest place. They don't go to heaven. They don't get the 72 versions because if a woman kills you, that is like woman is, you know, down on the rung somewhere. And that's how they view humanity. There is no love in that particular culture. So this idea, God says, love your brothers. I've given you several examples how we don't love our brothers and our sisters. And we're supposed to make sure that we're doing that and we're not killing somebody. And by killing, I don't mean just physically, I'm talking about as well being angry at them. Now, there is a time to be angry, but we're not to sin in that anger. And we're not to be angry without a justification. And it always must be for a righteous cause. So this is what 
John is telling us, if you dig in here and you start expanding it and you go, wow, what, what does he mean by this exactly? Well, I've given you some examples of that. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love our brothers. Anyone who does not love remains in death. And so those people who are killing over in the Middle East, God tells us clearly, those people are not saved. They may think that they're going to heaven, but according to the Christian God, the Christian scriptures, this is not the case. And so we need to pray for them. We need to oppose what's going on. And if you're in the military, you need to take up arms and do what the government has declared you must do in order to keep everybody safe here. And so that's how this expands out. Anyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life in him. Verse 16. It says, this is how we know what love is. So he defines love for us. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. Now, this is talking physically. If it is necessary that you, quote, unquote, take a bullet for a friend, you're supposed to take a bullet. Now, as a Christian, we're not to have this fear of death. And the Christians that went to the arena that were killed by animals or gladiators, you know, it is said, if you read some of these stories, <coughs> excuse me, they would set the Christians in groups out there. And the men would surround the women. And they would allow themselves to be attacked first to try to protect the women. There's no greater love than this than a man they down his life for his friend. And so that's what it's being talked about in context of what people would understand, especially in this text. And if you go to First Peter, the persecution that they were suffering there as well. This whole first century church, there's persecution going on. That persecution is making a resurgence here. And it may be required in 10 or 20 years or maybe sooner that no matter where we are, we might find ourselves in the same kind of state, same kind of condition. And if you need to give your life for somebody, okay. Because if you do... What benefit is there to you? Tremendous benefit. God will reward you for sacrificing yourself. Now, what about your time? You want to sacrifice your time for somebody else? No, you can take my body, but you can't take my time. Or you can take my body, but you can't have my funds. No, you can have whatever my life is, but nothing else. And is that what it means no if you expand this out we're to be willing to sacrifice supposed to be willing to sacrifice everything for those who are around us the savior did it the prophets did it the apostles the martyrs did it and it is good for us to remember this that we should lay down our lives for our friends to illustrate this a little bit here's a person that laid down potentially his life what It wasn't taken completely from him. This is about Lance Corporal Kyle Carpenter, a brave Marine who threw himself on a grenade to save his best friend. On November 21st, 2010, Lance Corporal Kyle Carpenter and his best friend Nick Efazio were bombarded with grenade blasts that changed both of their lives. The amazing story of how Carpenter risked his life to save his best friend and his long recovery from the impact has recently gone viral on Reddit. The Marine Corps Times reported that Carpenter and Euphrasio were at a guard post, and it gives this place in Afghanistan, where insurgents chucked hand grenades on the roof where the two Marines were posting security. Carpenter didn't hesitate to fling his whole body 
on the grenade, protecting his best friend and the rest of the troop by taking 99% of the blast. As a result of his heroic deed, Carpenter's jaw was blown off and, and lay against his shoulder. Somehow, still attached, most of his teeth were gone. His left eye was mangled. He sustained severe trauma to his right arm, which had severe tissue damage and more than 30 fractures. Although his body had absorbed most of the entire explosion, his friend Euphrazio feared much worse. A couple tiny slivers of shrapnel had mangled, managed to get by Carpenter's body and were lodged in Euphrazio's brain. Even in the midst of his own horrific wound and painful recovery, Carpenter feels guilty for not having absorbed 100% of the blast, reports the New York Times. According to the military, there has been some inquiry as to what exactly happened that day in Afghanistan. Others who were there, however, confirmed that Carpenter, in a heroic gesture, risked his life for others. Now, I tell you, I've, I've told other stories like this before, that people who have gotten the Medal of Honor because they have jumped on a grenade, this guy did it and he survived. And he was even concerned that he didn't stop 1% of the shrapnel. Now that is love. That is laying down your life for somebody else. And when I hear stuff like that, I just, you know, I get chills on the inside like, wow, this, this guy would actually do that, would lay down his life. Now as Christians, we know that we have a glory that awaits us. But if you did that for somebody who is an unbeliever, maybe it would show them Christ. Now, I dare say, I don't think any of us are going to have to land on a grenade. But this idea, if you lessen the responsibility a little bit, what if your time and your resources were involved? Are you willing to do that? You see, this guy's given everything. And sometimes we can just be as stingy with any of our possessions or our time. And we should not do that. We have been given an example here. Now, with this, we are supposed to make sure that we give of our substance, so to speak. It says in verse 17, if anyone has material possession and sees his brother in need and has no pity on him, how can the love of God be in him? Dear children, verse 18, let us not love with words or tongue, but with action and in truth. Now, I have always, I don't know about you, but I've always struggled with this. As a Christian, who is poor in our society? And when I've started to examine this, and there are all kinds of programs out there for feeding the hungry, clothing the poor, sheltering them, and the government has taken this over. I believe it was never the government's responsibility to do this. It's talked about in some of the founding fathers. They say that... We should never use the funds in the government for benevolence purposes. That we are supposed to do that ourselves. It gives us the ability to extend mercy and grace. And it benefits us as far as character is concerned. When you remove that from the populace and you give it to the government, the government takes over what God intended for the people to do. So as a result, the government taxes us in order to provide for the poor. And they don't do it in quite the right way. And you might say, well, what do you mean? Millions are being helped. And this is true. Millions are being helped. But it's also leaving over the nation this idea of entitlement and lethargy. 
you don't have to do anything because you can just get a check. And at one particular time, women were encouraged to have more children because they would get more money and they'd become welfare moms and they'd be welfare families and the kids would start to fall through the cracks. And so God tells us what I just read to you, verse 17 and 18, that we as individuals are supposed to give directly to the need. And our founding father said, do not use the government to do this. So how far from this ideal have we gotten away? We've gotten plenty far away. So far away that I'm going to read you something. If you're going to give something to somebody, well, let me just read what we're doing in California. Poor people can get cars for free in California pilot program. You wanted an electric car, right? A recent introduction pilot program in California is full of incentives aimed at simultaneously getting old pollution spewing vehicles off the road and putting low income drivers behind the wheels of energy efficient cars. The incentives are so incentives are so generous and flexible that in the right situation, a car can be purchased for zero dollars. No joke. The program is available to poor residents of certain disadvantaged areas of California, specifically the greater Los Angeles area and the San Joaquin Valley. Simply enough, the program from CARB, California Air Resources Board, works by providing increasingly larger cash payments for the lowest income families to move up to a very to the very cleanest cars. Not only will they give you money to buy the car, but they will give you $2,000 to buy the port that you hook it up to. They are giving away cars to the poor. Now, I think to myself, maybe I should become poor. But then God would say, no, you're supposed to work for what you have. First Thessalonians says, if you will not work, you will not eat. And so I'm going, what is, have they lost their minds? And I think to myself, we are so far beyond this. And so I have always struggled with who is poor in our country. And I know, I know there have to be people that go hungry, but the way I see it, I don't know how, because there are so many government programs. And so when there are these moves to help the poor in this country, as opposed to third world countries, inside I, I just get this hesitation all the time. And this isn't the only thing. In 2010, the Heritage.org research reports 80% of poor households have air conditioning. 92% of poor households have a microwave. Nearly three-fourths have a car or truck. 31% have two or more cars or trucks. Nearly two-thirds have cable or satellite TV. Two-thirds have at least one DVD player and 70% have a VCR. Half have a personal computer, and one in seven, two or more computers. More than half poor families with children have video game systems such as Xbox or PlayStation. 43% have Internet. Now, this is in 2010, so I'm sure these numbers are higher. One-third have a widescreen plasma LCD TV, and one-fourth have a digital video recording system such as TiVo. And all of them have a free phone if they want it. What more do you need? If you have food stamps, and it's not food stamps, it's, I forget the name of the program now, but it's just a card. And not only will you, what's it called? EBT. EBT. Not only can you use the EBT, but in some places they'll give you back cash. And so you can buy whatever you want. 
You can buy tickets to a concert. And I'm, th- I'm thinking, we have lost our minds. According to scripture, we have lost our minds. Now, how did I get that from verse 17 and 18? It says, we're supposed to be doing this. It doesn't say the government is supposed to be doing this. By the way, this is preaching right here. This is not teaching. This is preaching. <clears throat> I believe that if we as Christians just let this go, it will continue to get worse. And those who stand up and say, we ought to be doing this, individuals in a totalitarian society will turn to us and they'll say, easy for you to say, you have all your stuff. Well, yeah, you're supposed to work for your stuff. You're supposed to work for your food. And so wherever you see this egregious breach of not only scripture, but common sense, it behooves us to stand up and say something about it. Now, if you're here and you have an EBT card and you have this electric car that's been given to you by the state of California and you have your LCD screen TV and you have your Xbox and it's all been given to you, what do you want me to say? Praise the Lord? I'm sorry, I'm not going to do that. What I'm going to say is, look, let's act like Christians. We are supposed to have a particular lifestyle that we maintain that people would look at us and say, wow, you work hard and you give away of what you have. That's so great. Now, please, if you're walking out of here under this cloud of condemnation like, well, that was uplifting. You know, if you're going out of here with that kind of attitude, please don't. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You're not condemned where you're going to hell, that type of thing. When I read the Bible, I go, oh, that's so me. I have to, I have to change that. That's what I do when I read the scripture. That's all I'm encouraging you to do. It's like earn what you're supposed to. And the reason we have jobs is so that we might provide something for somebody else. This is why God has set it up. If we do it this way, we will be a happy society. If we don't do it this way, we will continue on a spiral down. We have to make sure we call evil evil and good good. When you give something to somebody... It it behooves us to point out this is what God would require. This is what God wants. And if somebody says, I don't want your God, well, okay, you just move on. But we want to make sure we're standing up, we're declaring right and wrong, we're instructing people on what they should be doing, not putting anybody under cloud of condemnation, just saying, look, we can do this in a better way. And it's God's way. We mess it up every time. If as a a community, as a country, we followed God's precepts and teachings, we'd be even a more blessed country than we are today. I fear that we are sliding away from that. As Bill Bennett wrote, we are sliding towards Gomorrah. As individuals, we can turn that around in society. So my prayer for you is that you're not afraid to stand up. We already see that we will be persecuted when we do so. But God, in Matthew chapter 5, it talks about the world will hate you for Christ's sake because you hold to his teachings, to the way that he said to do things. And the world doesn't like that because the world is brought under conviction and even condemnation when they hear these things. So be blessed. Go do the right thing. You don't have to condemn people around you, but you want to make sure they know that they have the knowledge. And this will turn us all 
into good disciples, which is my prayer for you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, how it exposes the sin in our own lives, that, that we need to turn from certain things. And Father, if there's anyone in here just feeling like they're under a cloud of condemnation, I pray that you would remove that. I pray that they would give thanks to you for showing them the right way from your word, not made up by any pastor or any teacher. Lord, it is something that you have set forth. And help us to be sacrificial in this. Help us to deny our own flesh, our wants, cares, and desires. Help us to live for you in what is good for everyone else around us, according to your word. We thank you for your guidance in this. We pray for strength to turn whatever area each one of us deals with, Lord. Give us strength to turn from that so that we might be those disciples you ask us to be. In Jesus' name, and the church said, amen.